Amen. That song that we just sung is going to fit beautifully with our sermon text today from Ephesians chapter one. As we sang over and over there just a moment ago, praise and honor unto thee. God is the one who gets all praise and glory and honor for our salvation. Jesus is the one who has accomplished it. God has planned and predestined it. And God, the Holy Spirit has applied what Jesus has done to us as sinners. And so we have an unshakable, a real and lasting hope in the Lord Jesus. And we give God praise and we give him honor and glory for that. I, for one, am, am very thankful that this is the last service that we're doing outdoors. Uh, this will be the last time that we're fighting wind and cool temperatures and like wearing gloves and trying to shift papers around. So I'm, I'm excited for our meeting next Sunday at 10 a.m. at Arden Presbyterian Church. Hope to see you all there. And we look forward to being able to worship indoors. I look forward to how the singing will sound inside and all kinds of good things. Um, so we thank God again for his providence in giving us a place in which to meet. We don't take that for granted. We're now going to turn our attention to the Bible, and we need God's help to do that. We've said this a lot already today. If anything good is going to happen in this gathering, it will be because God shows up and does that good work. God, the Holy Spirit comes. He opens our eyes. He gives us hearts that will receive what God has said in his word. And so let's pray now for the Spirit's help as we look to scripture. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you having absolutely no confidence in ourselves. And at the same time, we have shown up this morning, regardless of, of how we might be feeling emotionally, we have shown up hopeful because of you, because you are utterly faithful to us all the time because you love us, because you are gracious and merciful to us, and because we are now called by your name in your son. And so we pray for your help. We pray that your spirit would come and fill me as the preacher of your word. And we pray that your spirit would come and minister to all of us who will sit under your word this morning. We pray above all things that you would show us Christ in scripture, that you would remind us of your absolute and utter faithfulness to us. Remind us of the certainty of our salvation. Everything in this world changes. Oftentimes we feel like the hymn says that everything around our soul is giving way. We pray that you would come and remind us that you are our hope and stay this morning. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, many have said that the Reformation, and by that I mean the Protestant Reformation that began about 500 years ago, Many have said that that Reformation was a recovery of the biblical doctrine of assurance. And that is the conviction of the pastors here at Covenant Baptist Church, that the Reformation was a recovery of the biblical doctrine of assurance. And by the doctrine of assurance, I mean the truth that sinners can be assured of their standing before God now and in the future. So when we talk about assurance, we mean both those realities, that sinners can be assured of our standing before a holy God now and also in the future, forever. We have peace with God. We are in a state of grace. And having been united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we will never be put to shame. Never. That's what we mean 
when we talk about the doctrine of assurance. And these wonderful truths are at the heart of the gospel message. Sinners who are truly guilty, who are truly corrupt in all facets of mind, soul, and body are absolutely safe and completely secure in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And it's important that we understand that we do not, and by we I mean Christians generally, but I specifically mean we here as the congregation that is Covenant Baptist Church. We do not believe these doctrines for sentimental reasons. We do not confess these doctrines just to make ourselves feel better. We believe them and we confess them because they are in the Bible. And we're going to get to consider them together today from Ephesians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Ephesians 1. If you have a Bible app on your phone, make your way to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Just by way of reminder, I realize this is the third sermon in this series. It's been a choppy start just because of a cancellation of service and some other things interjected in between some of the messages. The big theological themes of Ephesians are effectively these. It, the mystery of Christ in the gospel, how it is that God has planned from before the world began to save a people through Christ. Secondly, the grace of God to us in Christ. And then thirdly, the centrality of the church in the purpose and plan of God. The arrangement of the letter to the Ephesians in our modern breakdown with chapter divisions and the like, we have three chapters on the eternal plan of God to save us through Christ. And then we have three chapters on how we as God's people are to live together in the church. So now that you have made your way to Ephesians 1, and I've given those brief comments by way of overview, let's look to the text together. We're going to be considering specifically verses 11 to 14 today in Ephesians chapter 1, but verses 3 to 14 are all one long sentence when Paul wrote it originally. And for context, I'm going to read all those verses for us today. Beginning in verse 3, all the way through verse 14, this is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. 
Praise and thanks be to God for his plan of redemption to us in Christ. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's consider just for a moment before I, I give the rest of the, the sermon outline. Let's consider for just a moment the flow of Paul's thought in verses 11 to 14. How would we summarize that? First, we can see that Paul is writing to the Ephesian Christians that in Christ, the saints have obtained an inheritance and that inheritance has been predestined for them by God. In Christ, the saints have obtained an inheritance having been predestined by God for that. This is so that, Paul says, the first to hope in Christ, who are almost exclusively Jewish, would be to the praise of God's glory on the one hand, and also so that the Ephesian Christians, almost exclusively Gentile, would be to the praise of God's glory as well. So you can kind of track with Paul. The saints in Christ have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined for that, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ, the Jews, would be to the praise of God's glory, and also so that you, Gentiles, who heard the gospel and believed in Christ, would also be to the praise of God's glory. Regarding the Ephesian Christians in particular, Paul says that when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and believed in Christ, they too were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of the saints' inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's his flow of thought in verses 11 to 14. So now I've got five points, five points for us as we consider this text in more detail. Point number one, in Christ, the saints, and that is both Jew and Gentile, that's important. The saints, both Jew and Gentile, have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, the saints have obtained an inheritance. Put your eyes on the text. Look at the beginning of verse 11. You see those words, in him. Those words, in him, are all over this beginning section of Ephesians chapter 1. In him, meaning in Christ. You see again at the beginning of verse 13, in him, you also. It is only in Christ and being united to him that the saints, both Jew and Gentile, have obtained this inheritance that is theirs. This in Christ reality applies very clearly in the mind of Paul to all saints, whether they are Jewish or whether they are not Gentile. The inheritance that the saints will obtain is obtained by way of faith in the Lord Jesus. Put your eyes on verse 12. You see that Paul talks about the fact that when the Ephesian Christians, excuse me, when the Jewish Christians, the first to believe in Christ, they hoped in him, right? So this is a word that we use often. You see that word there. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, well, what is hope? To hope in Christ is to have faith in him, right? It is to trust in him. Put your eyes on verse 13. When it comes to the Galatia, or excuse me, the Ephesian Christians who are Gentile, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you believed in the Lord Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We see this language of hope and belief pointing us to the fact that this is through faith, not through any other way. We have been united to Christ. We are in him, and he is now our representative. Regardless, in Paul's mind, of whether one is Jewish or Gentile, all saints are hoping and believing in Christ. 
He is the one in whom the saints believe. He is the one in whom the saints hope. In other words, the saints are not believing or hoping or trusting or resting in anyone or anything else, including themselves, what they've done. We rejoice as Christians always have. We rejoice here at CBC that our hope and our confidence is always and only in Christ and what he has done. It's Christ's obedience that has saved us. It's Christ's obedience in a way that is often referred to as his passive obedience, meaning what he suffered for us. He, the sinless one, was counted to be sin, was considered a sinner for our sakes and atone for our sin as our substitute, as our representative. He, the sinless one, in being counted as sin for us, bore the wrath of God that we deserve. And he is satisfied completely for all the sins that we have committed and for all of our corruption that is inherent to us in our fallen nature. He is our atonement, our satisfaction, and our propitiation. He has reconciled us to God through his obedience, through his suffering, through his death. But then there is also what is referred to by theologians as his active obedience. If his passive obedience is his suffering, his active obedience is his perfect life. Many will know that Jesus did not just show up on planet Earth Passion Week to live for a few days and die. He showed up and lived for 30 years before we hear of anything of him publicly. And then he had a public ministry of several years in duration. And his perfect life matters for us, just as his death matters for us. Because he was born of woman, born under the law, in order to fulfill the law for lawbreakers like us. So that by faith in him, not only is our sin paid for, but his perfect record of holiness and obedience and righteousness is counted to us. So it, in the eyes of God, it is as though we have done all of the works that Christ did. This is why we can rejoice and why we can rest and why we can celebrate the fact that there's nothing left to do. Nothing could ever be required of us that Jesus has not already done. That's how we know we're safe. And we rejoice in that reality that we are believing and hoping and trusting in Christ. And because we've been united to him, everything that is his is ours. Now, that's a remarkable thought. And I would suggest biblically, when we see language like we do in Ephesians 1 about inheritance, we need to think in terms of union with Christ. We have been united to Christ, and so we will inherit what he inherits. What is his is ours. Think about the things that the scripture says of Christ, of the Son of God, the Messiah, and what he will inherit. In Psalm 2.8, the Father says to the Son, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. We are told in the New Testament that we will be co-heirs with Christ, that we will reign with him as Christ inherits a new heaven and a new earth. 
We will be with him. We will see him as he is and we will reign with him. Because of our union with him, we will inherit that. Think of the language of the writer to the Hebrews. He's talking about the Old Testament saints. In Hebrews chapter 11, he says of them, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Canaan, right, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. When we talk about inheritance by union with Jesus, we're inheriting that, the city that God has prepared. The name of that city, Ezekiel 48, will be the Lord is there. We have received Hebrews 12, a kingdom that can never be shaken. That is part of our inheritance in Christ. We have received in Christ a kingdom that is not of this world, nor from this world. John 18, in the language of Christ himself before Pilate. In Christ, we are heirs according to promise, Galatians 3. In Christ, we have been justified by grace and have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, Titus 3, 7. In Christ, the saints, both Jew and Gentile, have obtained an inheritance. And brothers and sisters, the inheritance is glorious. We will consider it more next week. God wants us to know, later on in Ephesians chapter 1, just a little bit of a trailer. Verse 18, God wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We'll think more about that together next week. Point number two. This, our inheritance, is due to the predestining, the plan, and the purpose of God. Point two, our inheritance is due to the predestining, the plan, and the purpose of God. Look at the second part of verse 11. So you see, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined by God, according to the purpose of God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, who does as he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does everything he pleases. And praise be to his name, he is pleased to give us an inheritance in Christ by faith. Our inheritance, as I've said, is according to the plan of God, the predestining of God and the purpose of God. We won't labor this this morning because two weeks ago when we last met, we considered at length the plan of God to redeem sinners through Christ. But consider these words with me briefly from Galatians chapter 3, another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, where he says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. All right, so this can't be said enough, because we need to 
understand this and wrap our minds around this. God told Abraham that he would make a great nation out of him and that he would do. God made a nation from Abraham, the nation of Israel. And from that nation would come the promised seed who would save the nations. That matters tremendously. From the nation would come the promised seed, the promised one who would save the nations. And that has always been the plan and the purpose of God. So God worked almost exclusively through the nation of Israel for a period of redemptive history. The nation of Israel was a type and a foreshadowing of the church that would come. The church even is a type and a foreshadowing of the Revelation chapter 5 reality where there is a people from every language, tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne of God praising him forever for his glorious work in redemption. So we see how God's plan has been unfolding through time and through space. It is also important for us to observe, and this also cannot be said enough, that our salvation is due to the predestining and the plan and the purpose of God. It is not a fragile thing. It is not something that just kind of popped into God's mind at some point in history. But this is something that he has been about accomplishing forever. And I don't just mean the salvation of his people in a general way. I mean the salvation of his people in a very specific way. That carries with it significant implications, and we're going to think more on that later together. Point number three. The saints have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Number three, the saints have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Look to verse 13. Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Friends, it's important that we understand, even as we look in these verses, you can see it in the text, just as I can, that believing in Jesus and being in Christ, that union with Jesus, and being sealed with the Holy Spirit, they go together. They go together. You can't pull those things apart. Being sealed with the Spirit, the new birth, believing in Jesus, Union with Jesus is what marks off the people of God in the new covenant. To receive the Holy Spirit is to be marked off as a child of God and is to be sealed in Christ as a child of God. To use the language of Paul here, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee or could be rendered the down payment on our inheritance until we take possession of it. Think about those words, sealed. What does, that, what does that make you think in your mind? It's like, okay, if I'm sealed with the Spirit and I'm sealed into Christ, I'm, I'm there. I'm, there's no leaks in this seal. And I'm safe. It's where I'm going to remain. And when you see that word guarantee, what does that mean? It means this is a certainty. 
This is not like wishful thinking. This is not some pipe dream. You know, you've been, you've been sealed and then you might inherit this. No, it's a guarantee. It is certain. The people of God have been united to Christ by faith and sealed into him by the Holy Spirit. Now, the name of our church, Covenant Baptist Church. We're going to talk, we're going to talk for a second about baptism because I don't think that looking at this text, we can, we can think about it fully without talking about baptism and what it signifies. So when we talk about union with Christ and when we talk about being sealed into Christ, this is, brothers and sisters, what baptism signifies. Think about Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, we have been baptized into Christ. Colossians 2, 11 and following, where he says, we have been baptized into Christ's death and have been made alive together with him. We discuss this in every membership class that is taught here, but it's good for us to think about this for a moment this morning. When we go through life and we experience trials and suffering of various kinds, we struggle and we wrestle. We question everything, including God and his goodness to us. We struggle with faith sometimes. We have these battles where we don't feel assured of our salvation. And there are a number of things that can be helpful to us in those moments where we are reminded of the truths of God's word. One of the things that we say here when people are wrestling with assurance and wrestling with the hope of salvation is, brother, sister, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Why would we say that? It's because baptism was not something that you just did one time to profess faith in Christ. Baptism is something ultimately that points to what God has done for you, how you have been sealed by his Holy Spirit. You've been baptized into Christ and united to him. God will be faithful to you as you have been united to his son to keep you. Remember your baptism. The Holy Spirit has baptized and sealed us into Christ. And he is the guarantee of our final salvation. It's kind of a big deal. Point four. This is not going to come as a surprise to anyone. Point four, our inheritance is certain. Our inheritance is certain. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have all been working for the redemption of the saints since before the world got started. We have seen that over and over and over again in Ephesians chapter 1. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. You want some ballast in your boat for when life gets crazy? Ephesians 1 is a good place to go. Because before this world even existed, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been working to redeem you. It's a mind-blowing reality. The Father, look at, let's just survey these verses quickly. The Father, verse 3, has been bestowing blessing upon us, namely every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world, verse 4. He has predestined us for adoption into his family, verse 5. He has predestined our inheritance according to the purpose of his will, verse 11. 
And then we see all of this language in verse 5, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 14 about his will and his purpose and his plan that includes us. Well, what about God the Son? What's he been doing? Well, in him, verse 3, we have every spiritual blessing. In him, verse 4, we have been chosen. Verse 5, in him, we have adoption. Verse 7, in him, we have redemption through his blood. Verse 11, in him, we have obtained our inheritance. Verse 13, in him, we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that seal, verse 13. And the Holy Spirit, verse 14, is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So it's important that we think about the language of verse 11 and the language of verse 14. In verse 11, track with me for a moment. We see in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. So we have obtained it. It is ours. We have acquired, we have obtained it and it's with us. And then in verse 14, there is also a reality in which one day we will acquire possession of it. So we have obtained it. One day we will acquire possession of it. Sometimes for us in our human finite brains, when we think in these terms and we think about a timeline and we think about something that's going to happen in the future, immediately that introduces into our minds and hearts some degree of uncertainty. Well, if it's in the future, how do we know? But when it comes to God and his plan of redemption for us, just because something lies in the future does not mean for one second that it is not certain. We have obtained an inheritance and one day we will acquire possession of it. Write it down. Stake your life on it. It is not in jeopardy. That's because, how could we ever say that? That's because our salvation is the work of God, not our work. That's why we can say that. That's why we can talk with such certainty in a world that is full of uncertainty. You know, I was reading something recently, just brief sideline here. When sin entered the world, life became uncertain. And the only thing that was certain became death, right? So sin enters the world, life is uncertain. And because sin is in the world, the only thing certain is death. How could we ever talk with any kind of confidence and certainty that we will be saved? It's because salvation belongs to our God and he has promised it to us. He planned it. He purposed it. He has predestined it. He has decreed it. He desires it. That last piece matters. God wants to do this. Not sure if you've thought about that. It is not as though his love and grace have gotten him into a pickle that he just can't get out of. He desires the salvation of his people. There is rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. Such is the nature of our God. Here at CBC, we understand salvation. I'm going to use a word and I'm going to define the word. We understand salvation is monergistic here. Mono one, ergo worker. 
We believe that there is one worker in salvation from beginning to end, and that is God and not us. We are justified, declared righteous by God completely by faith in Christ, and that faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. We understand that we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit's working in us. We participate in our sanctification just like we participate in life by being alive, but we do not confuse the issue for one second thinking that we do it. The Spirit does it in and through us. We are changed and conformed in the image of Christ. And we understand that at the end of the story, we will be glorified, raised imperishable, incorruptible to live with God forever solely because of the work of God, not anything that we could do. That understanding that God saves sinners and that he does it all is a big deal. It has everything to do with whether or not we'll be finally saved. If any part of our final salvation, so by that word, I mean anything that could ever be considered. If any part of our final salvation depends on us, we have no hope. I think in our sane moments, we know that deep down. We're all lawbreakers. We're relatively comfortable with that language. We're Christians here. We're comfortable to say we've broken God's law. Where it can get a little dicey, even in the church, is that even now we confess and admit that we all still struggle with sin. Our lives, if we're honest, are not always or even often clean. Our lives are not always or certainly not often steady. Many will know the name John Newton. He was an Anglican minister and hymn writer. Famously, he wrote Amazing Grace. That's maybe what people know him most for. John Newton wrote of himself hundreds of years ago these words. I am a riddle to myself, a heap of inconsistence. Amen, somebody. I am a riddle to myself, a heap of inconsistence. He's exactly right. We have nothing to say in our own defense. We find ourselves, as Paul writes in Romans 7, often not doing the things we want to do. Or we find ourselves often doing the things that we don't want to do. We know that we're wrong. So what kind of hope is there for people like us? In ourselves, there ain't any. None. In Christ, though, we have a sure and a lasting hope. Now, you're sitting there. You're processing. You're wrestling. Some objections might be rising up in your own heart and mind. Say, brother, I'm a great sinner. I'm a great sinner. You have no idea the ways that I sin and what I battle. It may be true, but friend, Christ is a greater Savior. You are a great sinner, and he is a greater Savior. You may be thinking, brother, I just don't know that I'm going to be able to stop sinning anytime soon. I don't want to sin, but I just don't know that I'm going to be able to stop sinning. Brother, sister, take heart. 
You are exactly the kind of person that Jesus came to save. You may be thinking, brother, like this burden is heavy. Just life, my sin, struggles, wrestlings. This burden is heavy. I don't think I can carry it. Well, you can't carry it, but Christ can. He takes your burden. He carries it for you. And he gives you his burden, which is light. You may be thinking, but brother, what about my sin? I, I might very well blow this thing. How can you tell me that I'm going to be finally saved? I might ruin this. Because I know myself. It's true that you might sin really badly. And you might sin really badly for a really long time. We pray not for any of us here today. We pray not. But it could happen. But at the end of the day, brother or sister, you, we, will be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Because Christ knows his own and he will save his people. Listen to some of these words from the 1689 London Baptist Confession. These words were written hundreds of years ago by a group of believers. And I certainly could not say it better. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on him to sustain them, to make them more cautious also about all future circumstances that may lead to sin and for other just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of his elect happens by his appointment for his glory and for their good. Just because you are mired in sin does not for one second necessarily mean that you are not Christ's and that God does not have you. Consider these words that we confess together today. It would benefit us to hear them again. Those God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Therefore, he still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. The felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from them for a time through their unbelief and the temptations of Satan. Yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation where they will enjoy their purchased possession. For they are engraved on the palms of his hands and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. That will preach. That is glorious truth. Point number five, as we land the plane in our time together this morning. You see in verse 12 and in verse 14, the end of those respective verses, these words, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory, which leads us, number five, all of this, our redemption, our inheritance, all of this 
is to the praise of God's glory. To the praise of God's glory. It is not as though our salvation and the glory of God are in any way at odds with each other. They go together. Lost my mic. Here we go. Our salvation and the glory of God go together is simply what we're thinking about. There are not competing interests in the mind of God. Paul's point in these verses is that the praise of God's glory is in the redemption of the saints, not apart from it. Sometimes I think we can, not meaning to do this, but unintentionally act as though God's glory is here and like our good and our salvation is somewhere over here. This is not true. Biblically speaking, they go together. God glorifies himself in the redemption of his people. Our salvation magnifies his grace and brings him honor. To pull all of this together, I want to use a little bit of Bible. I want to look at the book of Revelation. Just a brief word on that book of scripture. It was not written, Revelation that is, was not written so that 21st century theologians can get PhDs with the most outrageous and outlandish interpretations. It was written to persecuted Christians in the first century to comfort them. The message of the book of Revelation in a phrase is Jesus wins and you're safe. Jesus wins. Now, let's look at this. Revelation chapter 5. If you have a Bible or if you've got your Bible app open, Revelation 5 and verse 1. We're just going to read this and allow this to close us. Then I saw, John writes, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's God, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, this scroll contains like the end of the story, the consummated redemption of God's people. Who can open this seal? Verse three, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. That's bad. John, because of that, verse four, begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, seven being a number of perfection. And he went out and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Nobody's worthy, but the lamb slain walks up to the throne of God and takes the scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, all right, here's where we see the glory of God and the redemption of sinners come together. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. There's that inheritance again. We have redemption and inheritance for the saints and the glory of the lamb. Let's look forward. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
praising the Lamb. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped to the praise of his glorious grace indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we praise you. We admit that our minds and our hearts can hardly understand everything that you have revealed about our salvation and about your glory that is wrapped up in that. We pray for your spirit to continue to work in us, to strengthen us in our inner man, that we might comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ for us. We pray that we would know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, that you delight to save sinners such as us, and that you rejoice that we will reign with Christ forever. Help us to understand and grasp these things and strengthen and sustain our faith as we do. We pray for you now to minister to us as we make our way to the Lord's table. We pray that the work of Christ would be at the forefront of our minds and hearts. And we pray for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we are going to make our way to the Lord's table. Here at CBC, it is our conviction that the best way to respond to the preaching of God's word is to come to the Lord's table. We have received Christ by faith in the word. Like when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We now come to receive the work and the merits of Christ by faith in the bread and the cup. This table is not for those who are sinless. This table is for sinners who know that they're sinners and who know that their only hope is Christ. This table is not for the perfect, but for the weak. And God, by his grace, through all of the things that we've been doing this morning and through this table, he sustains us in the faith. He strengthens us and confirms us in Christ. You do not need to be a member of Covenant Baptist Church in order to partake of the supper with us this morning. We do ask, however, that you be a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you not be under the disciplinary action of a gospel preaching church somewhere. If that description, all of that fits you, you are more than welcome to partake of the supper with us this morning if you are visiting with us today. Just a few words of practical instruction. Uh, this is the last time, it's landing on me, that we will do this outside, uh, but we need to be reminded perhaps one more time of just how this will go. We will take a few minutes of silence to reflect and pray um, regarding what's been said, what's been preached, what's been sung, and and also prayed thus far in the service. Pray for the forgiveness of your sins. Pray for God to continue to conform you into the image of Christ. Thank God for what he's done for you. Pray for your brothers and sisters. It's a good way to use the time. We ask that you remain seated until you are stood by me and Rob as we'll be playing music. We'll stand together and we'll begin to sing around the table, the King of love my shepherd is, and Jesus paid it all. When the music begins and we stand you, you may make your way forward to the table. We do ask if you come to acquire elements that you be wearing a mask. The elements are in self-contained packaged units and feel free to send one member of your party up to grab elements for the rest of you. That's entirely fine. Lastly, if you are uncomfortable to come forward to acquire elements yourself, but you would like to partake of the supper this morning, just raise your hand. Let that be known. We've got a couple of volunteers walking around who will happily bring the elements to you. I think that does it with... Uh, words of instruction. So brothers and sisters, friends, let's now go to the Lord and in prayer and in silence and prepare our hearts to come to the table this morning.